Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 54 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. This episode is the conclusion of my two-part interview with Felix Rodriguez, a retired paramilitary operations officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. Felix took part in many of the pivotal events of the Cold War, including covert operations in Cuba, the Vietnam War, Laos, support to the Contras in Nicaragua, and most famously, the hunt for Che Guevara in Bolivia in 1967. I've been hoping to speak to Felix since I started this podcast, so I'm very happy that we finally made contact and are able to talk about the incredible life he's led today. The previous episode, number 53, covered much of his early life leading up to his time in Bolivia in 1967. So if you haven't listened to that one already, you might want to do so now because this episode picks up right where that one leaves off. And if you want to hear even more from Felix, we've also uploaded a bonus episode to Patreon for all my subscribers there. It's more than 30 additional minutes that don't appear in either of the two episodes that we're releasing here, and it covers in-depth Che Guevara's final hours as Felix interviewed him and his fate was decided. Wow. So this is your first time seeing him face to face, right? Right. Wow. How, how did that feel walking in there? I mean, he's wounded. He's laid out, I'm assuming. Well, when I arrived, now the building they have is a concrete building, Cuban government built. At that time, it was a, a building that was built from, it was a mix of clay, some kind of a clay. Hmm. You know, it, it didn't have any block or anything like that. Then I had some straw on top, very rustic. Uh, it didn't have any concrete floor. It was dirt and it was very humid. So when we got in this little room, there was only a small window on the left side in front. Che Guevara was tied down, hands and legs, in the ground, uh, under the litter window. So we came to the door next to it. And in the back of that room, there were the dead bodies of two Cubans. One is Captain Oslo Pantoja, who was in charge of training in, in Cuba for foreign trainers, for foreign guerrillas. And the other one was another Cuban captain that was killed during the operation. So I came in with Colonel Centeno, Major Ayoro, the executive of the battalion, a couple of captains. Uh, of course, the only one who spoke was Colonel Centeno Naya. And he started asking questions to Che, and Che didn't answer one single question. He looked at him and just stayed quiet. To the point that Centeno was mad and said, look, you are a foreigner. You in invaded my country. The least you can do is having the courtesy of answering me. And he didn't answer anything. So he was really upset. He came out of the room. He will give me all Che's documentation to photograph it for my government. So he ordered Colonel Selly to give me Sheck's back. He had a little bag who was very white. It was camel color on the outside, a make of a leather. And inside he had a huge book made in Germany. That was his, his diary. Of course, it was written in Spanish. But Monday, Tuesday was written in German. He had some photographs from his family. He had some medicament for his asthma. And he got some very small, about like eight different code books, very, very small numerical ones. We have glue all around, what we call one-way path. 
And he used to use the number to codify to his letter and send messages in code. And he could not be broke because it's a one-way code. It's impossible to break. And he got a bunch of this book in, in black and in red. The black was for uh, deciphering and the red one for ciphering, you know. So, and, you know, he left. He went to the operational area. So I took the diary and I started photographing the diary. Then a little bit while after when halfway photographing the diary, I left a soldier guarding the diary. I came into the room to talk to him. So I got into the room. I stood in front of him and said, Che Guevara, I'd like to talk to you. And he looked to me from the ground, very arrogant. I said, nobody talks to me. Nobody interrogates me. So when I saw that attitude, I said, I didn't commit interrogate. I just like to talk to you. I admire you. You used to be head of a state in Cuba, and you are here because you believe in your ideas, even though I know they are mistaken. He just came here to talk to you. So he looked to me for a while to see if I was making fun of him when I was laughing. When he saw that I was serious, uh, he looked at me and said, can you untie me? Can I sit? So I ordered a soldier, I had to order three times to come into the room. I said, untie Commander Guevara. So we finally untied him, and it was difficult, you know, because he was such a long time in the same position, he could hardly move. So we had to help him to sit in a small bench that we had inside that room. And then we start talking. But whenever I ask him questions that were of tactical interest to us, he said, you know, I cannot answer that. But a pinching different. For example, I asked him, some of your people have said that you had like, like 10,000 in Africa. The, the, the African soldiers were very poor soldiers. So he looked at me and said, I cannot answer that. He said, well, you don't want to answer that, but your own people said that you had like 10,000 guerrillas in Africa. They were very, very poor soldiers. So he said, well, if I had 10,000, it really would have been different. But you are right. They were very poor soldiers. When they were in combat, they would look around. Most, most of the, of the Congolese would just drop their weapons and left or took the weapons and sell it. And the only one fighting were the Cubans. So really they had a lot of trouble. All the weapons that he received in Africa came from Red China. That's why he was totally abandoned in Bolivia. Actually, Fidel sent him to Bolivia to be killed, I guess, on this instruction of the Soviet Union. Because the Soviet Union didn't want a Che Guevara being triumphant in Bolivia and a revolution was going to be honoring Mao Zedong and not the Soviet Union. Oh and my Cuba gosh. depended on the Soviet Union 100%. That's why when he went to Bolivia, they only sent one transmitter for him to answer Cuban communication by radio. And the one transmitter arrived in there broken. So he could never have communication with Cuba. Then actually... Mario Monge, the head of the Communist Party of Bolivia, who had met Fidel two months before in Havana, had a dinner with Che on the 20, on the 31st of December of 1956. And it was a completely breakage between the two of them to the point that Mario Monge told the Bolivian communists that were with Che that if they stay with Che, they will expel from the Communist Party. So he completely took the support of the Communist Party from Che. And they had a Cuban intelligence officer in La Paz called Renan Montero. It's very well known in Cuban intelligence circle. And this guy had been established in there like several months before Che arrived. And he became very proficient. He was able to even get relationship with the office of the president of Bolivia. He was sometimes invited to the reception of the presidential palace with Barriento. So he stayed in there when Che arrived. He was responsible for receiving all 17 of them in Latin the airport of La Paz, driving them all the way to the operational area. And once all of them were established in that area, he was called back to Cuba with the pretext that his visa had expired. That's what they told Che. And this guy had become the U.S. They had become the Bolivian citizen. So he didn't, he didn't have to leave. He was done purposely to leave him alone. 
because there was no interest in Cuba that him be successful and be a revolution would be World War Mao Zedong. My gosh. So Che never had a chance of succeeding then. Everyone was truly against him, it sounds like. When you look at it, to me, he was the worst guerrilla, really, that ever existed. He operated close, less than a year, uh, between 1966 and 68. 66 and 67. During all of that time, he was not able to recruit one single farmer. All the people that were with him were the Cubans, 17 altogether that came from Cuba. <clears throat> they were Cubans, they were two Peruvian, and there was Tania, Tamara Bunkebeide from Germany, Italian officer from the Soviet Union, actually, from German origin, who was sent there actually to, to check on Che. <clears throat> and then the other were members of the Communist Party that joined him from the Bolivian Communist Party, who actually were then declared out of the Bolivian Communist Party when they stayed with Che by Mario Mone. Actually, Benino was joking to me and said, the only individual who joined the guerrilla was a dog. And then because of lack of food, he deserted also. Oh, wow. My gosh. <laughs> che was having a, a bad run of luck there between Congo and now here. And I guess we see how it ended, of course. So he was, it was a total disaster, really. So all of this is leading up to, I know that you, I mean, the Vietnam War is raging at this point. Did you go to... Vietnam after Peru, or did you have some other travels as well? No, after Peru, I went to Vietnam. I volunteered to go to Vietnam, and then they actually had me a, an interview with Tom Flory, who was the head of a station in Venezuela. So then I got a call from the agency and said, look, both uh, Tom Flory from Venezuela want you to go to Venezuela, uh, being advised to a 10,000 police unit in Venezuela, or Ted Shagley in Vietnam will allow you to go to Vietnam. So I told them, if you believe my expertise will be better served in Venezuela, I'll go there. But it is my choice. I'll go to Vietnam because I've never been in that part of the world. And of course, not many people were volunteering to go to Vietnam. So I went to Vietnam in early 1970. I finished one tour of a year and a half. I extended for a second tour because of accidents and helicopter and my back and all of that. I only spent two and a half years in Vietnam. And then my the <clears throat> wife came back to the United States. And then I was sent to Argentina. Two and a half years, that's still a lot longer than most people who went over there. Yeah. They were doing the 12-month tours normally, weren't they? Yeah, the, the army, the army's tour goes for one year. CIA tours go for a year and a half. So I finished my first tour and I extended for the second tour because I was evacuated because of back problem in 1972. Uh, so I spent the whole 1970, the whole 1971, and then part of uh, half of 1972. Oh, I see. What was your mission in Vietnam? Well, when I arrived, there was some paramilitary unit called the PRU, Provincial Reconnaissance Unit. Every single province in Vietnam had a PRU unit. Allegedly, they were under the national police. But in reality, they all were managed, paid for, and, and directed by the CIA against the Viet Cong, the infrastructure of the Viet Cong. Mm, okay. So I was assigned to Region 3. Vietnam was divided in, actually in five regions. Really, there were four regions. Uh, I-Core was Danang on the north part of, of the, of this, of the, uh, country. In the middle, region two was Natran was the capital. Now, number three, where I was, was the most important one because those are the 11 provinces around Saigon. And then you had the Delta, which was the, the region four. They had the swamp on the south of, uh, of Vietnam. And then they call actually Saigon region five. It was not a, a region. It was really the capital city. 
But in all reality, there were four military regions in Vietnam. I was number three, 11 provinces around Saigon. We had military units in every single province. When I arrived, every one of our unit had military advisor that responded to us. We had SEALs and we had U.S. Special Forces Green Beret. And they were the one who accompanied the, the, this uh, unit in operation. And we were with the one who, they were detailed to the CIA and we were the one who run and gave them target intelligence and everything for different targets in the area. As time went by, by Vietnamization, they, we lost all the, all these advisors. So there was only about four of us. I was the deputy director of PRU for Region 3. My boss, Rudy Andrews, later he was pretty high in the agency. He became the, the, in charge of a special operation for the CIA worldwide. At that time, he was in charge of Region 3 and he was his deputy. So specifically, they gave me a couple of missions that were very important to them. One, stop the rocketing of Saigon. And second, stop the rocketing of the boat coming to Saigon. What was going on, all the boats that was coming in through the, the river, through the Rumsak Special Song into Saigon, they were, they were targeted, especially at night, by rockets from the Viet Cong. And it would hit the boat. It, it didn't sink them, but it would, it would damage the boat, and, and they could not stop that. And also, every single week, there will be one day of the week, they will fire at least a couple of 122 rockets into, into Saigon. It really didn't do any big damage, but it was a psychological operation to tell the world that the United States, with 500,000 troops in country, could not stop the rocketing of Saigon. Normally, they point the rocket toward the U.S. Embassy and the Presidential Palace. Rarely, they hit the target. But it was a psychological thing. Saigon is hit again by Soviet rocket, and nobody can stop that. So I concentrated with uh, the PRU of the Runsak Special Zone to stop that, and also the boat going to Saigon. Now, it was impossible to, okay, it was a group we knew existed, Subregion 4, commanded by two tanks, a Viet Cong colonel who was in charge of about less than 100 guys who was responsible for fighting this rocket into the Saigon area. They constantly received the 1.22 rocket through the Ho Chi Minh Trail then they will stay in this area. They will fire the rocket into, into Saigon, a couple of them uh, every week, and then came back. We could not find where they were. And the reason we could not find them, because they were hiding in an area that we would never even thought they could be there. Because it was an area, <coughs> the Runsaga Special Zone, that had like six, 17 feet of, of, of tide that would come up in water. I mean, it will, the water will raise like 17 feet. It was impossible to be able to live in there. And now we were able to capture uh, Kwok, who was a paramedic in Habak, which is the, the province around Hanoi. And he was mad at them because they sent him to the south. Now, Vietnamese families are very big. <clears throat> By the time that I left in there, there was not a single Viet Cong. They were all non-Vietnamese soldiers. They were uh, supply, supplementing every time we killed a certain amount of Viet Cong they will replace them with North Vietnamese soldiers that were coming through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So let's say there was a column of a thousand North Vietnamese army soldiers coming through the south. And then they have carriers all around uh, Vietnam from north to south <coughs> for the different provinces. And they needed, for example, they have killed on, on, on the I-Corps, they killed uh, 50 people, for example. Now they pick up 50 people from that bunch of a thousand and, and supplement them. And they were doing that until they depleted all the way to the end. So it was never an ending, ending war. It's impossible to end that war because you kill 10, 
they replace 10. You kill 100, they replace 100. It was a never-ending process, okay? So this guy was the one in charge of the operation. We captured his bodyguard, Buck, and he was mad because he was the only male in the family, and they took him because they had that tremendous need to use in the South. Normally, what they did, the Vietnamese family are pretty big. Maybe there are five, six males, maybe four or five girls. They will take, they always leave one male in the family so they would be able to take care of his sisters and mother. In this case, they took him and he was the only male left. He was pretty unhappy with them. He cooperated with us tremendously. And then he told us exactly where they were. They were in that area where they had 17 feet of, of water going up. And when they did, they, they got 55 gallon drums and they soldered one on top of the other. All right. And then when these tires start coming up, they go on top and they sleep actually on the top part of those 55 gallon drum that was, it was the water didn't get to that place and it was under a tree. When the water came down all the way flat, they would come down from that, the 55 gallon drums up there. They would take the rocket, they would fire into Saigon at night and then they came back and they jump on top of that 55 gallon drum column and stay up there. So when we learned that, then I start flying with the huge 500 in the area that he pointed out for, for us where they were. And remember, it was time truck flying at three top level with the helicopter <clears throat> after the tide came down. So imagine they were coming down, they were running all over the place. I mean, the, 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 the mud was very, very fresh. So you could see, you know, their feet moving around the area. So. By, by December the 4th, <clears throat> 1970, I arrived in early 1970. On the, on the 4th of December of 1970, we had a huge combat near a, a little ravine there. We were able to kill like 18 or more from two tanks units, including Colonel Tutank. And from that day on, they were not able to fire one single rocket until after I left Vietnam. And that's what they, they gave me the cross of gallantry with gold star. The gold star is equal to the Congressional Medal of Honor. Then they had the silver star, cross of gallantry with silver star and cross of gallantry with bronze star. <clears throat> I received one gold star for that operation, two silver star and six bronze star from the Vietnamese. And then for the operation with the Navy, I got the, the Naval Medal of Honor for stopping the rocketing of Saigon. Now, every boat that came at night was escorted by a naval gunships called the Seawolf. They had rockets, they had miniguns and everything on those helicopters. <coughs> now, they the helicopter was covering the, the boat. When they saw the explosion of the flash of the rocket, they would they dive and they would hit the hell of the area with, with, with bullets, with rocket and everything. And they could not get anybody. So, one time I was able to pick up what they call sappers. Sappers are the special forces of the, of the Viet Cong. And uh, they were the one who doing the rocketing of the boat of Saigo. Now we found out when we got this guy, he had in his backpack an electrical green wire about 40 meters long. Now what they did, they would set up the rocket in a platform pointing toward the boat passing by. And then they would run this wire 40 or 50 meters on the side. And then they had a point of reference. When that boat hit that point of reference, they, they were told by you know, a guy that was in the other side, that's exactly where the boat was in front of the rocket. So they electric will activate, fire the rocket. So they hit the area where the explosion and there was nobody there. They were like 50 meters away from there. 
So I got them to go into a US-1A helicopter, all the gunship gun pilots from the Navy, from the Sea Wolf. I took my troops in the ground and we put a, a red grenade in the middle and then a, a yellow grenade 50 meters on each side. So they visually can see more or less the difference where they were actually fighting the rocket. So every time they saw an explosion, they will hit 60 meters on one side and 60 meters on the other side. But we never knew from what side they were going to do. And they eliminated like seven teams and, the, and they had no idea what was going on. And we completely stopped the rocket thing on the Saigon. So the, the commander of the Navy gave me the, the Naval Medal of Honor for stopping the rocket thing on Saigon. That would be two really main achievements that I got in Vietnam, besides doing another one where we captured another cadre near the Pushi Tunnel. Wow, you had eventful tours there. No question about it. Yep. My gosh. So after two and a half years, were you were you ready to leave Vietnam or, or was it just like the... No, I, I wanted to stay, but my back, you know, I was shut down five times in Vietnam. And my back was really poor shape. So after two and a half years, I went. I remember I went to photograph an area of operation was on the Cambodian side. When I came back, I could hardly walk. So they had to take me to 24th evacuation hospital. <clears throat> when they took an x-ray on my back, they told me it's impossible. You can't be walking. And they evacuated me back to the United States. And actually, they gave me a first-class ticket so I would be more comfortable oh. flying back to the States. <clears throat> now, while I was in Vietnam in, in, in late 1971, I met an Argentinian general who was a friend of the new chief of a station in, in, in Saigon. Uh, he was invited by, by the chief of the station. He was the, the general Tomas Armando Sánchez de Bustamante. He was the commander of the First Army Corps in Buenos Aires. <clears throat> a very close friend of President Lanusse. He was the number two man in the country. So they assigned, because he didn't speak any English, they assigned him to me to give him a tour of my operational area, explain him everything that we were doing in, you know, in this operation. <clears throat> so on the following day, they told me that he had requested me by name with, with Ambassador Bunker. He wanted me to go and be his personal advisor in Buenos Aires. So he was told he could not do that from Vietnam. If he was really interested, when he went back to Buenos Aires, he could request it through the American Embassy in Buenos Aires. Well, that was in late 1971. Here come 1972. I got finally evacuated. I came to, uh, to Washington. They took a break. They saw how bad my back was and everything. And then they requested, he had the request from him to the U.S. Embassy in, in Buenos Aires that he wanted me to be his personal advisor. <clears throat> so I was called upon by the Latin America Division Chief and said, look, I know you have this back problem, but we are going to give you a waiver to be able to go to Buenos Aires because it's very important to us. That post doesn't, that uh, slide doesn't exist. We're going to create a position because this guy is number two guy in the country and we'd like to have somebody next to him. He wants you to be his personal advisor. So what they did is the only requisition I had every six months, I was supposed to go to Panama for a checkup of my back. But they, they released me to be able to go to Argentina at about the end of 1972. Okay, I arrived from Vietnam in the middle of 1972. Now, one thing that happened in 1971, one of the trips I came here, they hijacked the plane I was supposed to go back to, uh, to Vietnam. Actually, before I came for Christmas to visit my family, the chief of station called me and said, look, we have a, a Cuban defector in Paris 
who told in our debriefing that they were, that he doesn't know who, who he was talking about. He said one of his buddy was preparing to hijack the plane where the assassin of Che Guevara will be traveling going back to Vietnam. So we don't want you to fly into Miami directly, go somewhere else, and then we pay the difference. So when it came for Christmas that year, I flew into Atlanta. I rented a car. I drove to Miami to spend the 24 with the family, uh, paid the, uh, spend the New Year's with my family. Then on the 7th of January, I drove back to Atlanta. I have a cousin who lives in Atlanta. So I have a flight that leaves Atlanta, Houston, Houston, San Francisco. And I had to wait like four hours in San Francisco to continue on toward Vietnam. So I found out that there was another plane that was one hour later that was stopping instead of Houston was stopping in Dallas and then San Francisco. So I took that one to be able to spend one more hour with my cousin <clears throat> and one less hour of waiting in San Francisco. So when I arrived to Vietnam, nobody was waiting for me at Thompson Hood Airport. So I had to take a Lambretta, one of these Vietnamese leader vehicles. They took me to the Duke Hotel, which is the CIA hotel. I changed. When I got to the U.S. Embassy, the first guy who saw me said, what the hell are you doing here? I said, what do you mean what I'm doing? I'm supposed to be here. Nobody was waiting for me at the airport. So the guy said, no, 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 no. The record that we had, your plane that you were supposed to be going from Atlanta to Houston was hijacked to Cuba. So, you know, it was a matter of luck that I didn't go on that flight. So what they did when I went with my, actually my family accompanied me to Argentina. They took my American passport. Uh, when I was in Vietnam, I used a, a red passport, it's official passport. When I went to Argentina, I was using my American passport. Now our passports say place of birth, Cuba. So my son and my daughter were born in the United States. They had no problem. So what they did, they took my, my our original passport of my wife and I, they took it to the State Department and they changed the passport, exactly the same name, all the details the same. <coughs> Where it said place of birth, instead of saying Cuba, it said Colorado on both passports. So in case my plane was hijacked, they could claim me as a U.S. citizen born in the United States. So during that time, I had my born in Colorado for a few months. Then I was supposed to be another two years in there. But then when there were elections in May of 1973, President Campero was a Peronist, became president. Immediately, he reestablished relations with the government of Cuba. And the day that the Cuban ambassador arrived in Buenos Aires, they took me and my whole family. They pulled us out of Buenos Aires to uh, Paraguay, Uruguay, then I spent some time there and then back to the United States. And then, then they had to give my passport back to them and then they changed the passport and they gave us our passport that said place of birth, Cuba. But I still have a photocopy of the other one that said place of birth, Colorado. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, you've collected so much amazing stuff from what I've seen over the years, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a, a video of you showing around your house a little bit. You got some amazing memories from all over the world at this point. Yeah, I got a few interesting things in there. I got, for example, I have the the the, the leg of one of the 500 helicopter where I crashed in El Salvador. <clears throat> so I have the picture of someone when I in the helicopter in the ground that crashed. I had the whole side of the helicopter that I took as a souvenir. I also have a extinguisher that was inside helicopter number 39. And I was flying low. <clears throat> I took fire from a hill. The bullet came through. My, it didn't hit my leg, but it came through my leg. And hit the, the extinguisher. It was right in front of me on the left side of the helicopter. So he got the bullet hole and had the bullet inside. Now that thing turned white as smoke inside the helicopter. You could not even see. Oh, gosh. Like for a, a few seconds. 
Now, we fly without doors, so we put out a stream sideways. Of course, the air took out the whole wind out of the, out of the helicopter. So I kept the extinguisher, had number 39. I got a picture with the other pilot next to the helicopter, where you can see the hole in the extinguisher. And I keep that in my home also. Wow. And that, that bullet went <laughs> past you by a few inches, I guess, over your leg or under your leg? Hmm? No, that no, bullet? no. Went right between the leg without touching me. Oh, my gosh. But it was like maybe an inch or so from my leg. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, by the way, I saw a video clip from another documentary. You had like a, a custom pistol made, didn't you, at one point? You no, I got, I got a, a Browning pistol. I had it in Guatemala. I had on the on the on the back of the pistol on the on the handle i have one side i have the cuban shield in 18 carat gold and then on the other side i have my initials then i have when i have the initial in the bottom i have a browning pistol had the little insignia around very small that had the, the b of browning in there i took that out and i got all the che Guevara's picadura you know, from his tobacco that he, he smoked that day that i took out of the of the pipe I put it inside that that area with a like a, a small round female watch, very small. So I had a, a, a jeweler encrusted that in there and seal it in there. And inside you can see the picadura, you know, from the tobacco of Che Guevara last smoke. I keep that here. I used that when I was in El Salvador. Then I keep it here in, in my home. Oh wow, that's amazing! The tobacco from his final was it a cigarette or was it a pipe that he was smoking? It was actually, uh, I, I borrowed a couple of cigarettes from soldiers because he didn't have any uh, tobacco, really, for the pipe. And what he did, he opened those cigarettes inside the pipe, and he smoked tight like pipe, but it was cigarettes, uh, uh, picadura put inside the pipe. <clears throat> Man, that's amazing. That's that's a fantastic memoir from that time. Let me tell you one thing interesting. I, I got a lot of that picadura that I put inside. A, I had a, a, a booklet. So in a paper, I, I turned out the paper out of that inside. I took that part outside many, many years ago and put it on the, on the, on the back of my pistol. That one looked exactly like, like, like tobacco. It haven't changed. You can see it through the pistol. Now, the one that was kept inside that, that piece of paper that is, that, that is turned around several ways, I donated to the CIA for the CIA museum. Now, when we opened that, like, so many years later, 50 years later or 60 years later, he has turned in like silver powder. You no longer see like a tobacco. Now, the one in the, in the back of my pistol, exactly the same. I haven't changed. But that one turned like there was pieces of, of silver powder inside there. Now, they, they kept that. Hmm. Very cool. So it's on display to this day. I guess it's going to be there forever. Yep. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what did you do after Vietnam? Was it a lot of medical recovery at that point? I mean, did you did you have to medically retire because of your back injuries? They, they wanted me, well, they retired for a security consideration back in 1976. <clears throat> because at that time, 1975, Colonel Centeno Anayo, who had become a general by then, became the Bolivian ambassador to Paris in France. And in 1975, when he was leaving at 12 o'clock at noon, he was leaving the embassy to go to his home in Paris to have lunch with his wife. And when he was opening his car, they shot him on the head and they had a little piece of paper saying, Commando Che Guevara, you know, they, they assassinated him. Then one that I knew at Major Roberto Quintanilla, who was the advisor of the Minister of Interior in Bolivia, 
he had become the Bolivian uh, consul general in Hamburg, Germany. By that time, he had become a full colonel. And then he was also assassinated in his office, and they left a piece of paper saying, Che Guevara's commander. Hmm. Now, somebody called my home using, and nobody at that time knew or related Felix Ramos with Felix Rodriguez hmm. at all. So somebody called my home, and my answer is say, Felix Ramos, you are next, and they hang up. So I told that to the, to the agency. So they decided to retire me at that time. And what they did actually was they retired me with total disability. I was not totally disabled. I was partially disabled, not totally disabled. But they told me they were going to do me totally disabled so I did not have to work. I have a routine of going, for example, to a job at 8 o'clock in the morning and coming back at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So I received basically the same amount of money I was receiving when I was in active duty. So I could not take a job that implied going to one place and coming back, you know, on a routine time. And they did that and they also came to my home. No, they wanted to change my name, move me to another state, which I refused because it would be a tremendous burden, especially on my son and my daughter that were 10, 11, 12 years old. You cannot tell them that her name is no longer Rosemary Rodriguez, another name. And then they lose all their friends in the school here. It would be a trauma for both of them. I refused to do that. So what they did was they gave me that total disability. So I didn't have to have a, a job per se like that. Also, they came to my home. They, the, the office of security checked on my house. They built a garage for two cars and put electrical doors on my car. I never sleep outside since then. Since 1976, both my car are always inside my garage. Mm. And then they gave me a mobile telephone. Now, at that time, you're talking 1976, there was no cellular phone like we have today. Now, Miami had, for the city of Miami, only 200 car phones and only six lines, which is ridiculous. Because every time you really wanted to call sometime emergency, the lines were busy. You have 200 telephones and six lines only available to 200 people. Okay. But they got me one of those. Telephone. Actually, when I went to the phone company to request it, the guy told me, Mr. Rodriguez, he smiled. He said, okay, you put an application for the phone. Please call me if I am still here in 10 years. There is a waiting period of 10 years for telephone in the Miami area. <laughs> so I called the agency. I told them, you know, what happened. They called me back later and said, look, call the guy again. I said, you mean so, so often? Call him again. So I called the guy and said, look, Mr. So-and-so, I'm sorry. You told me 10 years, but by the way, have you heard anything about my phone? His answer was, Mr. Rodriguez, I don't know who the hell you are, but your phone number is so-and-so will be connected day after tomorrow. Oh, my gosh. So in 24 hours, I had a phone that the agency arranged for me. Then I understand what they did. They got the guy, which is the counterpart of the of the phone company who works in Langley, the counterpart who works at the Senate. There's a bunch of telephone in there. And that guy called the phone company uh, and, and said, Senator so-and-so who have to do with the with the phone company wants Mr. Rodriguez to have a mobile phone in Miami. So they gave me a mobile phone immediately. And also they arranged for a concealed weapons license, which at the time, it's not right now that everybody had one. At the time, it was very, very hard to be able to get a concealed weapon. And then I had to sign a paper with the agency claiming that if I get killed related to my operation with the agency, my family could not sue the agency at all because they gave up because I refused the, what they considered really a way to protect me. Since I gave that up, 
they were not responsible if I get killed related to it. And I signed that. So I stay here. Unfortunately, I haven't had any problem at all through all of these years. So you never had any shootouts or any or anything like that? I mean, I know these guys came after you on multiple occasions, but they never got that well, close? Well, let me put the word. One time after a testifying Congress, all right, in, in, uh, in 1980, in, I see a testifying Congress in 1987, four or five days after a testifying Congress, I received a death threat in a letter that saying, USOB, I'm going to kill you when I, when I arrived. Uh, uh, to Miami, uh, Viva Fidel, Viva Che, Patria Muerta, Venceren, all of these things. Now, it had my name, which my matronymical name in the envelope. Now, the address was not my address. It was completely different, which meant that that letter could have never arrived my home. So what the FBI told me was they did that purposely. So you will know that they know where you live and they personally put this letter in your, in your mailbox because it, it could not arrive with the okay. address they put it. it was not my address at all. Wow. So how, how did your family feel all about all of this? Were they aware of this level of danger? I mean, did they have to well, take precautions themselves? I talked to my wife and my wife said, look, I believe in destiny. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I am not going to worry because I will go nuts if I worry. So we really, we don't, we don't, we, don't, we really don't, don't, don't bother at all. Now they, they were all several things that happened. One time I was still active with the agency. And they, they asked me, I had to go in 1975 to Lebanon for about a month. And I, I had been just operated, but they, it was an emergency scene, so I had to leave for Lebanon. Now, later on, Benigno told me that during that specific time, they sent Gorriarán Merlo, who was the Argentinian of, of uh, Spanish descendant terrorist, who actually assassinated Somoza in Paraguay. They sent him to assassinate here in Miami. The guy reported to the Cuban government that the CIA became aware of the of the attempt on my life and they took me out of the country we had no idea that was taking place i was in lebanon with no idea that they were sending anybody to kill me here oh my gosh and then one time one time that's what i put and now my house have 14 cameras all around i have medical key at the entrance of the house i didn't know what when it happened but i have a bunch of books in my florida room the different edition i have two in english a paperback and, and hardcover I have two in Spanish, one from Mexico, one from uh, Argentina, from the same book. I have one from uh, from Japan, written in Japanese. I have one from Czechoslovakia, written in Czech, and another one from Romania. So I had a bunch of books in there. I didn't know what happened. I went to show one of the reporters that came to do an interview to my home to show him the different version of my book. I noticed a very, very small hole Actually, in, 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 in one book on top of that, when I look at it, apparently somebody have come into my home. They stood in front of the book and fired 22 rounds into the bullet, into the books. So the, the bullet went through one book and it lodged himself on the hardcover of the Shadow Warrior inside. So I took it out. The visa was the 22. I took it out and put it in, you know, I have it in, in, in there. And I have all the book with the hole in there. But I don't know when it happened because it could have happened. I don't know. Because when I went to see that, it's because I was going to show it to this guy, this newspaper guy. I didn't know how, how long it did happen. So after that, that's when I put 14 cameras around the house and I put the medical key that nobody can open it, you know, except myself. Yeah, wow. I don't blame you. So you they never determined they, who that was? They didn't take anything. They didn't tell anything. Nothing. 
And what I was told by the Bureau was, no, they do the same thing to let you know if they wanted to kill you, they could do it very easy. Hmm. They can come to be home anytime they want. So just, just uh, let you know that you are that vulnerable. vulnerable. Well, yeah, that guy must have, well, you think it was, do you have your, any suspicions about who it might have been or just not sure? I have no idea, really. I have no idea. Jeez, that's incredible. Well, it sounds like your defenses are in place now, at least, and have been for a while. Have you had any anything come up recently? I mean, you know, I would think people would have a long memory about a lot of this stuff. We still talk about Che. We still talk about you, you know, to a certain extent, certainly. No, not at all. But let me tell you, I believe, I, I definitely can tell you I believe in destiny. You know, when I was in Vietnam, somehow I was convinced that I was not going to be shot at all. I, I don't know. It was, it was a, a conviction that it was going to be okay no matter what I did. So my boss, Ted Shagley, used to tell people that I had a death wish because of the operation that involved the thing that I did. I, I, I believe that I was either not crazy or was very brave. Neither of one of those. I just was so convinced that nothing was going to happen to me that I didn't, I didn't worry. And sure enough, I had never wounded once. I had people wounded next to me in the helicopter. I was never wounded once when I was in Vietnam. And for example, I give you an example where, you know, I believe in destiny. One time, I used to fly a lot. Of, it got to the point that the, the, the jet, the two-star General Hollingsworth assigned me a Huey that I would use uh, 24 hours a day because I was collecting a lot of intelligence for operation. I was running operation every week, three or four times. So one, one time I was supposed, they were going to send my Huey to pick me up in Benhua, that's the area where the CIA is close to Saigon, <laughs> fly me to Nave, which is a naval base south of Saigon. That's the bay that used to do the escort of the plane coming, the, the boats coming to the Saigon River. Nothing that was of any danger. It was just transportation. Pick me up here, drop me there, and then fly me back, okay, in the helicopter. The night before, we received a message from Tainim province. Now, this is one of the provinces where we had the biggest PRU unit. It's next to the Cambodian border on the north, northwest side of Saigon, okay? We received a coded message in, in Benhua that there was an encounter between our PRU unit and the Viet Cong, and there were 10 PRU that had been killed. It's very rare. It's always the other way around. It was unbelievable, but that was the report said. 10 PRU killed and several Viet Cong wounded. So my boss, Don Greg, told me, look, forget about going to Nabe. Go ahead and we'll send you an Air America, a small plane, one engine plane to Tainin to pay the widows. We had to pay 10 widows. I mean, it was a, a briefcase full of money because the piaster was 117 to one. I had to pay the salary of 10 widows for a whole year, every oh one gosh. of them. <clears throat> so I got my briefcase. I got off this thing. Seven o'clock in the morning, went to the to the runway in Benhua and then this little plane take me to take me. Now, my helicopter was supposed to pick me up at nine o'clock in the morning. Okay. So I went to Tainin, I, the, the plane left, and then I got it with my interpreter being, and he asked me, he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I came here to pay the widows. He said, what widows? I said, hey, we received a message in Benoit, in our region, that they were the operation that you had yesterday, we had 10 PRU killed. He said, no, 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 no. There were 10 Viet Cong killed. We had two PRU wounded. What happened was the guy who did the ciphering of the message Confused the code for friendly with the unfriendly, which meant for the code for, for the, for the PRU, he put the one from the end, back, back, back and forth. 
So I didn't have to go because really we didn't have any PRU kill at all. So I didn't know that. So I stayed. I had lunch with them. The plane came back in the afternoon, picked me up. I went back to Benhua. And my boss, when I go to see him, say, Felix, actually the way he put it was, you have a rabbit foothold up to your rear. Say, why? Say, look, your helicopter landed here to pick you up. You were not here. So it took off. It made one stop in Tonsonut in Saigon to drop two American army soldiers who were going on vacation. When it took off to go to a naval base where you were supposed to be there, the plane had an engine failure. It crashed, exploded, and every single crew member and people inside the plane were incinerated. They died. They were all burned to death in the helicopter. And it was by a mistake in ciphering, which never happened before. It never happened after. Oh, my so I really believe in destiny. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. That's some some unbelievable close calls that you've had so many times in so many different places. So, Felix, at what point did you eventually go back to Central America? I know it was around the mid-80s you were there again, right, in El Salvador, I think it was? Well, in the meantime, I did different things. Really, I had much to do. I went, for example, I was asked to do a security evaluation. I was retired. Uh, They asked me to do a security evaluation to the uh, political advisor of the Sultan of Oman. So I moved to Cairo. I spent like, I don't know, uh, six or eight months in Cairo with this millionaire. I actually, I got to, to be, to know, I personally go to the home of uh, Hosni Mubarak when he was vice president with Sadat. Cause he was giving some American uh, 180 submachine gun. I had to go there to teach him how to use this machine gun. One was for him, one was for Sadat. And then I had to go to uh, the intelligence service of the, of the uh, Egyptian. Uh, army to train them with about six of these machine guns that they gave them as a present. So I spent some time there. Then I worked as what we seen in, in, in Rome. I worked with him in, in London, in Geneva, in different places. Then I came back. So I did, I did different things like this. And all the things that I tried to do to get rid of Castro, which is personally got nothing to do with this. You know, so I never talk about that. But then in 85, uh, in 80, actually in 83, I saw what was going on in El Salvador. I, I, I felt really that the helicopter concept that I had, I had developed in Vietnam would be very helpful against the communist guerrilla in Salvador. So in 83, I tried to go there to El Salvador. Actually, I went to San Salvador and they sent me to talk to the Minister of Defense, who was Vida Casanova. I had just been paid Minister of Defense, uh, the, and nothing came out of that. Then in 19, in 1984, actually, my boss, Don Gray, became the National Security Advisor to Vice President Bush. And he knew how effective my helicopter concept was in Vietnam, because he was my boss in Region 3 when I was there. So I asked him, I said, look, I want to go to El Salvador to try to implement this concept, which I believe would be very helpful. So he helped me. Actually, he got me meetings with Thomas Morley, Undersecretary of State for Latin America. Let me tell you, it's more difficult to be able, if you are independent, and trying to do something like for free because I wasn't charging anybody a penny. It's very, very difficult to be able to do it because of jealousies in the system. Okay. Nobody liked to have somebody like in my case, I was retired from the CIA. I wasn't responding to anybody to go to El Salvador to try to implement a helicopter concept against the guerrilla, especially the military. At that time, General Paul Gorman, who was a four star general in Panama, wasn't interested in me going there. Because he is responsible for military assistance to all the different countries in Latin America. And here is a retired CIA Cuban guy, which he has no control over him to go implement a concept in there. Now, 
he was told, which is false, that I was very close to Vice President Bush. I didn't even know Vice President Bush at that time. Because when I received intelligence star for valor from the CIA when I retired, it was supposed to be given to me by the director of the CIA, who was Bush, then the director of the CIA. I refused to receive the medal from him because he was the first political appointee in the agency. All of the, of the director of the CIA were professional before. He was the first political appointee to be the head of the CIA, and he refused to get it from a political appointee. And he turned out to be a great director. He even named the, the Langley Building now the George, uh, George Bush uh, Intelligence Center, all right? But I didn't know that. So I refused to receive it. So they had a guy with 30 years of experience, very high in the CIA, to come to my home in Miami and presented to me in my Florida room the um, the Intelligence Star for Valor, another certificate that was given to me by uh, by the director of the CIA because of my operation in Vietnam. So I, I never received it from Bush. I didn't know Bush. But he was told that. So when the general heard about me going there, he called Admiral Murphy, which is an admiral in charge to be the advisor to the vice president for military operation. And he told him he wanted to meet with me. So I had to go to Panama. I Gorman, I explained to him, he said he liked it. And he told me, all right, I want you to explain this to my mill group commander in El Salvador. And he sent me in his private plane to go to El Salvador to meet the ambassador, Adrias Thomas Pickering, and, and the mill group commander. But I tell you, it, it was a nightmare to be able to be accepted to go there. I had to talk to Thomas Molly from State. Then Nestor Sanchez from the Department of Defense was the one also I had to talk to. He got me a meeting with General Bustillo, the head of the Air Force. It, it took like like two months to be able to line this up for me to go to El Salvador, where I finally went to El Salvador. And then when I went there, when I talked to General Bustillo, the head of the Air Force, I showed him my credential and what I was planning to do. My helicopter consent that did work in Vietnam. And he told, okay, Mr. Rodriguez, I like, I, I love to, but we have a problem. I said, what is the problem? I said, I cannot pay you. I said, who is asking for pay? I have my retirement from the CIA. The only thing I need is a place to stay, and you allow me to train your troops in there. Now, from that point on, when I went to El Salvador, he would hardly have spoke to me. I mean, I couldn't understand that. And then later on, we became very close friends because the first operation that I conducted was I tried to do it on the 17th of April. I had a good intelligence. It turned out that the, the Estado Mayor changed it for the 18th because they had a unit near my operational area and they sent troops in there uh, ahead of time. So we didn't find anything where I was. But in the afternoon, we went to another operation and I was able to capture Nidia Diaz, who was the commander of the PRTC, Partido Revolucionario de los Trabajadores Centroamericanos. She is the commander of the unit that assassinated our Marine at the Zona Rosas in El Salvador. Okay, and we capture her. Then after several operations that were very, very successful, then the general became very close to me. Then he told me what problem was. I said, look, Felix, when you came to me and you told me you were going to go to El Salvador and risk your life with us and you didn't want any pay, I was convinced that you were sent there by the U.S. intelligence service to find out if we were involved in the death squad because nobody would want to risk their life for free. I couldn't understand that. Now I realized that because what happened in your country, you really devoted, you wanted to do that. But at the time, I didn't believe you. That's why I had you attend football, because I thought you were there actually to find out if we were involved in the desert squad uh, with with the uh, Dabuzon, all of the people in El Salvador. And then we became very close friends. We continued to work together along those lines during all of that time. Now, actually, let me tell you, 
I never planned to be involved with the Contras, okay? Before that, I had visited the Nicaraguan resistance in Honduras with Basulto from Blood to the Rescue Guy, a relation with Bermuda, trying to help them with equipment, all of that. But when I went to El Salvador, it was strictly to fly with the Salvadorian Air Force. <clears throat> what happened was, in 1986, at the end of 1986, there was a problem that Oliver North had with a, a plane that was supposed to bring now. During that time, because of the Bolan Amendment, the United States government could not support the Nicaraguan resistance with any military equipment. Now, they did approve 27 million. I had an ambassador, uh, one ambassador to disimburse that amount of money for the contract. Only they could send them uniform, backpack, communication equipment, medicine, but nothing militarily. That's when Reagan got the, the king of Saudi Arabia, King Faisal, to provide during over a year one million dollars a month to supply the Nicaraguan resistance with military equipment. But the only thing that could come from the United States was uniform, not even knife, uniform, mm. sacks, boots, and things like that. So one time, one of the members of the resistance, Caleros Brothers, sent a plane full of boots and all of those things from New Orleans into Parnerol military base in Honduras, and he put a television crew aboard the plane. C-54 that belonged to the Nicaraguan resistance. When the plane landed at Palmerola, the military people from Honduras were really mad at them because everybody knew they were helping, but not that open to bring a crew into the military base to see how they were disembarking this thing. I bet. So yeah. they closed the whole operation for North. They told him they stopped. They could not send anything else from the United States into that area. Nothing. No plane could, could land in Honduras with any military equipment until they could solve this problem. Now, at that time, Oliver North had a, a, a flight from Southern Air Transport who was in Portugal, and they had bought a lot of military equipment, <clears throat> like 100,000 pounds of military equipment from the government of Portugal for the contract. The plane was sitting right there, and he could not fly into Honduras because it was stopped. And it was costing them a bundle to have the plane standing there without delivering the weapons to Honduras. So he knew that I had been very successful in El Salvador, capturing India Diaz on of this operation. So he contacted me and he asked me if I could ask the, the Salvadorian uh, Minister of Defense and the head of the Air Force if he could temporarily bring that military equipment into El Salvador, be able to keep it in a warehouse from the military from El Salvador. And whenever he solved the problem with the Honduras, he could bring this military equipment to Honduras. All right. <clears throat> now, I went to see then General Bustillo explain the situation. He sent me to talk to the Minister of Defense, Vida Casanova, telling Vida Casanova, General Bustillo, agree with this operation. So they agreed to it. They never informed that to, to the president of, of El Salvador, who was na Napoleon Duarte. He never knew about it, but it was authorized only by the military. And that's how I became involved in the darn thing. Now, when North saw that they were so readily to help, then he asked me if they could ask, if I could ask the Salvadorian, if he could bring play, actually, maintain in the Salvadorian Air Force. And they will pay for everything. They will pay for the material, for the technician, uh, for the fuel. The, the Salvadorian will have to pay nothing. Just allow them to do that. And then they agreed to that. That's how I became involved with the Nicaraguan uh, Contra operation. <clears throat> and then when shit hit the fence, that was just when the plane went down with, uh, with Hassenfoss, Hassenfoss knew my name by Max Gomez, not by Felix Rodriguez. But the Cuban government knew that Felix Rodriguez was Max Gomez. So when Mike Wallace went to interview Hassan Foss in Nicaragua for 60 minutes, 
he mentioned my name because the Cuban government told him that Max Gomez was Felix Rodriguez. That's when he was exposed publicly. That's actually when I had to testify in Congress in open hearing. That's when my son and my daughter knew for the first time that I was working for the CIA. Wow. After all those years, that's when they finally learned? Yeah, they thought I was working for an engineering company who was based in Philadelphia. My gosh. Did they start putting together some old stuff at that point saying, oh, okay, now this makes more sense. What, you know, what happened a few years ago or? No, they, they heard everything. Because when, when I testify in Congress, see, when, when they call you to testify, I was a witness for the Senate, all right? They actually, in the two day, I had to testify two consecutive days in open hearing. It was covered by CNN, especially C-SPAN, the whole testimony. You go today to C-SPAN, you put May 27, <clears throat> and you put, and, and you, you can see the whole testimony, 27th of May and 28th of May of that year, okay? Okay. The first, the first day, 27th of May, that, that was actually my wife's birthday. <laughs> the first day, there is a lawyer on the Democratic side who presents to the committee your whole life, where you were born, where did you live the first few years of your life, and your spirit to where I went to school, everything, every detail from when I went to the Dominican Republic, the whole thing. And then, uh, and even Vietnam, every, the whole thing. And then they go into details when you started in El Salvador in 19, 1985. All the details of the operation with the Iran Contra. The whole day is dedicated to that. On the second day, they have the first one hour is what they call the heaters. There are four congressmen, two senators and two uh, representatives. One Republican, one Democrat, and one Republican on each side. The senators and those four people are supposed to read every single deposition about you. So they know more about you than anybody else which is in the committee of the Iran Contra here. And every one of them has 15 minutes to ask questions from you. And they got, they know more about you than you yourself. All right. And you have to answer them. One Republican, one them, the one from the, the Democratic side, both sides. All right. Then after that hour, then it's open to the whole committee there. All right. <clears throat> I was the only one who tested. You can look at the record. I was the only one who testified in front of the, the, uh, the Iran Contra hearing without a lawyer, without immunity. There is nobody else who testify without a lawyer in there. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> they wanted me to bring a lawyer, all right? Even the White House. They offered me to pay for a lawyer. I said, look, if it, it's impossible. Uh, what I did, I don't believe that there is anything illegal of what I do. So the lawyer from the White House was what the lawyer for the vice president said, look, Felix, you don't know Congress. They might lead you to say something that might hurt the vice president, even though he had nothing to do with the operation. But we want you to bring a lawyer. I say, no, I will not bring a lawyer. Then he asked me to talk to one, which I did not talk to one. So I did testify without a lawyer and without immunity during the whole hearing. I came out fine. I had no problem during the there. <clears throat> the were, there were no repercussions for you from those those hearings? I, well, it, the only thing that really came out of that, Senator Kerry, he was not part of the Iran-Contra hearing. He had his own committee called, again, Narcotics and Special Operations. And because they controlled the Senate, he was the chairman of the committee. And the second one on the Republican side was Mitch McConnell. He was the number two guy in the committee. <clears throat> now, when I testified in Congress, there was one, actually was a Republican senator who asked me if I had, if I had knowledge <clears throat> of the Sandinista being involved in narco trafficking. Now, 
In early 1985, Raul Diaz, who was a lieutenant who was from Dade County Sheriff Department, was at retirement. and he was working for some lawyers. And he had this case of this guy called Ramon Milian Rodriguez. <clears throat> Ramon Milian Rodriguez was a Cuban by birth who was the accountant of the Medellin cartel. And he told Raul Diaz that he had uh, information who could compromise the Nicaraguan uh, government in narco trafficking. But he did not want to deal with the C, he didn't want to deal with the FBI or DA because they were penetrated. He wanted to deal with somebody from the CIA or that was connected to the vice president office because at that time Bush was the, the anti-drug czar of the administration. <clears throat> so he, he asked me to meet this guy. He wanted to bring me in my home. I said, you don't bring that SOB to my house. Would I go to your office? So in early 85, I went to Raul Diaz's office. I met this guy, Ramon Milian Rodriguez. He told me that he actually had some recorded tapes to an assistant of President Daniel Ortega at that time, who left Nicaragua and called him from Guatemala. And he got recording conversation with him, asking him to jump his bail to set up a money laundering operation for the Nicaraguan government in Panama. <coughs> he got all of these tapes. He didn't want to deal with the FBI or the DA. So I heard the, the information. I actually didn't care what he told me. I, I called my contact from the FBI here, Carlos Duran, part of the whole information to the FBI here in Miami. Then when I went to Washington, I went to the CIA. I passed the whole information to the agency. Now, the agency seems to be interested. Time went by, Raul Diaz called me, and nobody called me. I said, look, if they didn't call you, because they are not interested. And the CIA seems to be interested. What happened was the CIA called Leon Kellner, who was the prosecutor in the case of Ramon Milian Rodriguez. And Leon Kellner told the CIA, don't even bother. This guy is BS. All the thing he's saying, trying to get a reduced sentence. None of that is true. So don't, don't waste your time talking to him. That's why never talk to him. Okay. So I mentioned this case when I had to testify in Congress in open hearing. So Kerry heard that. And he sent his assistant, Jack Brown, to locate where Ramon Millian Rodriguez was. Now, when Ramon Millian talked to me, he said that he would probably have to go five years to prison, all right, for what he did. But he didn't want to go to prison because of his son, blah, blah, blah. Now, he was not there for five years. He, he, they gave him 45 years in prison. Oh, my gosh. Right? <clears throat> so they sent this guy, Jack Brown, to see him, and they told him, look, if you can compromise the vice president through Felix, now it has to be true. You cannot lie to us. You know, you tell that to him. You cannot lie. It has to be true. But if you can compromise the vice president through Felix, we're going to reduce your sentence. So guess what he said? Oh, yeah. Now, Felix was a patriot. He didn't touch a penny of $10 million that we gave them from the Medellin cartel for the country. He saw his poor troops in the field who didn't have weapons. So he accepted from us $10 million. And he guaranteed us he was going to talk to the vice president to help to be lenient with the Medellin cartel, which is ridiculous. Okay. <clears throat> so I finished my testimony. I went back to fly to El Salvador after the scandal. I continued to fly with the Salvadorian Air Force all the way to 1988. So my wife called me from Miami. She's pretty upset. She said, Felix, it said, it is front page of the Miami Herald with your picture as a second lieutenant when you was in the army. And he's telling that you received the $10 million from the Medellin cartel. And when I give this speech to the military, you I always say as, as a, as a, as a uh, joke. And my wife said, where is the money? And she never say that. So I said, look, Rosa, you know that BS. You know, I, said, I know that. But you have a, a, right here, you have a subpoena from Senator Kerry for his committee. 
So I asked her the number. I called Senator Kerry's office from Washington. I told them his office. I didn't talk to him. I said, look, you don't need a subpoena with me. Now send the ticket in Easter because I'm doing mileage. I'll be in Washington. You can, you can cross-examine me, whatever you want. So I flew, they sent the ticket in Easter. I went to Washington. I went to his office. There was Jack Blount representing Senator Kerry. And Robinette was a lady representing Mitch McConnell on the Republican side. They deposed me for five continuous hours. After we finished the deposition, Kerry's people wanted a closed hearing. No, we wanted an open hearing. What I told them, there's nothing classified about this. I retired from the CIA in 1976, and we are talking about things that happened in 1985. I've been retired for how many years. It's ridiculous to say there is something classified. Of course, they didn't want the truth to come out. So he was the chairman of the committee, so of course he had to be on close hearing. So I, I was really unhappy to tell you honestly. So when I went to the hearing, there were all the senators in there. So I remember talking, they asked me if I wanted to say something. I said yes. So I looked at Senator Curry into his face and said, Senator, this will be the hardest testimony in my life. Now, he knew he already, I already had testified in front of Congress two consecutive days in 87. I say, why do you say that, Mr. Rodriguez? I say, Senator, it's very difficult to have to answer questions from somebody that you do not respect. I don't respect you and what you are doing here. Oh, wow. Boy, he blew his top. Mr. <laughs> Rodriguez, because we disagree with you, we're not less patriotic than you are. I say, Senator, you didn't even have the guts to throw your own medal when you were protesting the Vietnam War. I say, Mr. Rodriguez, don't believe everything you see in the press. I say, Senator, I know that the hell of a lot better than you do. Then he tell me that was a veteran who asked him to throw his medal over the White House. And I say, bullshit. It was everybody's perception. It was your medal you were throwing over the Vietnam War. So we didn't finish in very good terms. Then for 10 months, I wrote a letter to his committee requesting an open hearing. He never answered. 10 months later, I get a call from Robinette from the Senate. And he told me, Mr. Rodriguez, uh, Senator McConnell, Instead, they asked me if you want to go to Washington and have a press conference with him and request an open hearing for Senator Kerry. I say, of course. So I prepared a statement, a three-page statement, with detail of all my contact with Ramon Miliano exactly what transpired in those meetings. <clears throat> I went to Washington. They called for a press conference in the building of the Senate, and that's when I asked Kerry for an open. And then at the end of my statement, I said, I hope this served as an honest uh, hearing and not for Senator Kerry's political reasons. So on the following month, Kerry gave us an open hearing, all right? Now, the day, <coughs> Friday. Friday is the only day in the Senate that they don't have any cameras. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they have cameras <laughs> filming your, your hearing. On, on Friday, there is no camera. And I was the last witness. So by the time I went to testify in his committee, very few Newspaper people were there. Everybody was tired. They were there since seven o'clock in the morning. They had gone. And in there, he told me that he believed me. All right. But then he asked me, he said, will you take a lie detector there? I said, of course. But I want you to take one because you are doing this politically. He said, well, I will not take one. He said, fine. If you don't take one, I won't take one either. So in those terms, you know, it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. Then what he did, which I am glad that he did, he called one of the best polygraph operator in the nation, Dr. Rafkin from the University of Utah, and brought him to Washington to give a lie detector test to Ramon Miliano Rodriguez, the prison, whatever he was. First question, did Mr. Rodriguez solicited from you $10 million for the Medellin cartel for the condom? Yes. 
deceptive that he was lying. Second question. Did Mr. Rodriguez give you carriers in Central America to channelize those $10 million from the Medellin cartel for the country? Yes. Deceptive that he was lying. Then on the third question, the guy asked, did Mr. Rodriguez receive in any way or form any money from the Medellin cartel? Ramon Milian Rodriguez refused to continue with the lie detector test. Now, how Senator Kerry write that in the congressional record? First question and second question, he had no choice. He had to say that he, what the guy was lying. On the third question, whether Mr. Rodriguez had received any money from the Medellin cartel in any way or form, the operator could not determine the veracity of the question, and they leave it like that. But they don't tell you that the operator could not determine the veracity of the question because the guy refused to continue with the lie detector test. So you read that, and you believe maybe something to it. That's why I hated this SOB so much. And when he ran for president, I was one of the AS speakers, but they had a Vietnam veteran for the truth against Kerry. Like on the west wing of the Capitol, where 100,000 veterans against Kerry, I testified against him. During the testifying, no, I spoke in that uh, gathering there to all these 100,000 veterans about Kerry. And let me tell you, I talked to a lot of people that were with him in the in, in the Navy when he was on one of these swift boats in the Mekong Delta, you know. He never had one single bullet hole in his body, all right? He declared mm -hmm. that he had three purple heart from being one in combat. What he did, he got, he called, he said that he had a skill from, from grenade, hand grenade that cut his body. Okay. And based on that, he requested the third time they didn't want to give him the purple heart because he wasn't meritorious for it. He had to wait until they changed the guy to get the third one. And the reason why he did that because it was an unwritten law in Vietnam that if you in one tour, were wounded three times, you could request to be taken away from the from Vietnam. And that's exactly what he did. When he claimed his third uh, wounded in combat, he got he left Vietnam based on, on that law that wasn't written. He requested to be removed. He never spent one hour in a hospital in there, ever. Well, I was not aware that you had been through so much with that particular accusation there, but it's all on C-SPAN. You, today you go into the internet and they claim that I was involved in narco trafficking. I received $10 million from, from this thing from Kerry. Now they accuse me a few years ago of killing Kiki Camarena, which is the most ridiculous thing. For 17 years, nobody ever mentioned my name because I was never in Mexico during that time. As a matter of fact, I keep, since this thing started happening, I keep a very precise record of what I do every single day. So I went, when they said that I killed Kiki Camarena in 1985, they, they gave it a specific date, February 6 or 7. I went back to my record. That day that they claimed I was in Mexico torturing Kiki Camarena, I went with Pedro Reboredo, who was the mayor of West Miami, to visit Perry Riskin, who was the director of immigration here in Miami, in the building which is on 79th Street and McLean Boulevard, to get from him permission to bring three Nicaraguan resistant kids that were wounded, one in the face and two in the back, and they didn't have any passport. So I got, I got a Honduran colonel to issue a like, identification paper with their picture and detail of day of birth, uh, black, you know, white, soft, height, weight, all of these things. So I brought those three pictures paper to show it to Perry Rifkin asking if he could authorize that they could give them humanitarian visa on that piece of paper because they did not have a passport. And he did authorize it. And we brought, during that time, we brought those three people to Miami. 
They went to the hospital, belonged to a Cuban recare in the north. And then Tigrito, who was the one who was 17 years old, with a, a bullet through his face. He was operating there. And then finally, in the vaccine, they had a transplant of, of meat from, from his back, who did uh, work fine. And they were they, the other two, they could not do much. Uh, they, they were paralyzed. And it's impossible. The, the, the column was severe, so they couldn't do more. But this guy, they were able to repair his face completely. Oh, that's, that's good. So I, I know that that documentary just came out, what was it, two years ago or so? I haven't yeah, actually it, seen it yet myself. But it's ridiculous. Um, the, 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 I spoke during that time. When that first came out, I spoke to his, Wilson was the, the director or the president of the DEA retirement organization. It's called... It's not called the, uh, it's called Bureau of Narcotics and, and, and Dangerous Drug, something like that, okay? <clears throat> and and he put out, before I even called him, he put out a, a communicate to all the members of DEA claiming that he had no idea why these two agents had put that lie because it wasn't true. Even one of them claimed that he was in charge of the investigation of Kiki Camarena. He was not in charge of the investigation of Kiki Camarena. And he told in that communication to all the members of DA, he had no idea why these people had lied, but that that wasn't true, that he had nothing to do with, with the CIA. And it was bad because that was giving Kiki uh, Camarena, no, assassin who was uh, Carlos Quintero, the excuse uh, to say now that he, he didn't do it, what the CIA would do, which is ridiculous. Okay. Because at that time, the Mexican government released Carlos Quintero, who was because of the killing of Kiki Camarena, he was spending a bunch of years in prison. The Mexican, I will imagine, for money, released him with, without telling anything to the DEA. And the guy is still somewhere in the street, and they, they haven't been able to capture him, even though the DEA had put a, a tremendous amount of millions of dollars on his head. He's still free in the street. Hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised that they haven't been able to track him down yet. Why do you think that these guys chose to name you of all people? Was it just because you were you had the reputation of being all over the world and and taking part in these events? Or, I, or some I, other I, I honestly believe like Cuba had to do in that. If it is true what they said that there was a new informant, what you won't come up with this 17 years later. If they are honest, I probably believe that that guy that's supposed to be an informant was working for Cuban intelligence. They use a lot of this for this information. We had the case, for example. When I was flying in El Salvador of a DEA agent called Celerino Castillo, who was assigned to, to Guatemala. And the guy went to El Salvador and talked to the ambassador saying that there were, there were drugs being moved at the Ilopango base from Hangar 5. It's a Hangar 5, the hangar that belonged to the CIA in Ilopango. And they have a special helicopter with equipment that they use to try to detect the entrance of weapons uh, through Cuba, through the ocean. And also when, you know, through, uh, through Nicaragua into El Salvadorian territory. Okay. Never did that ever happen in there. I am convinced that it was never a single penny that was used from the, any of the cartel for Nicaragua resistance. The Nicaragua resistance sustained themselves with $1 million for about 32 months. The, the Saudi Arabia King Faisal gave Oliver North's group requested by President Reagan that was legal. Okay. During all of that time. And then Secord utilized some money to give it to them. There is never a record of one penny going from the drug cartel. And because of scary hearing all of these things, oh, they always blow out and say that, that the country received a lot of money from the Medellin cartel. Yeah, I was, there was a guy by the name Tolliver, who was a pilot of the drug cartel, who put out like, many years ago a, a note saying that I was the one who contracted him in Honduras to fly a C-54 plane loaded with marijuana 
and I gave him the instruction to go to Hampton Air Force Base, and he did land there. There was a sergeant with a sign say, follow me. He got to an area there. He gave the key of the plane to the sergeant. He got into a taxi and he left. Ridiculous. It never happened. You know, but, you know, paper, take anything that you, that you put in there. And the Cuban government do say a lot of things. Whenever you see any allegation against me, and they call me that my nickname was El Gato, the cat that come from Cuba. Okay. I've never been called El Gato only by the Cuban intelligence. Hmm. That's interesting. Speaking of those, the Cuban intelligence guys, I know you've mentioned Benigno a couple of times already during this conversation. He was a guy that was, he was a Cuban intelligence agent, and now you are, you became friends with him later on. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Can, he you, was, can you explain right, how in the world that happened? He was happened? a right man for Che, for, for che Guevara in Bolivia. Okay. And then he, he finally got disaffected with the government and he defected to Paris. Now, when he first went to Paris, was to promote a book in favor of Che Guevara. They wanted him to stay in Paris six months to promote the book. In two weeks, he returned back to Cuba. Then ah, I cannot be without my wife because they did not allow to bring his wife and his kid. He had several kids, but one with that wife, Maria, they didn't allow them to live with them. So he came back. And then he, he finally got the approval using a, a, a Cuban a doctor who was very, a major of the Cuban army was very close to him. And he was able to secure for him to be able to go to party with his wife and his, and his kid with her. And that's when he defected. Now they took that commander who allowed him to go. He was supposed to go for military, for a, a, a physical in, in Topes de Coyante hospital. When he left, he was in a wheelchair and he died. Oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you, we became very close friends because I, I could see him. He was a campesino. He didn't even know the time how to read and write. He was helping a little bit to read and write what Che Guevara. So he was grateful to Che for that uh, reason. But he was very honest. Uh, when he was in Cuba, they gave him a, a beautiful house in, in Miramar, one of the best areas of Cuba. And he found in, in the yard, I would say, Hundred thousand of dollar in, in 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 art. He turned over to the government the whole thing, and then he exchanged that beautiful home for a little farm outside near the airport. Because that's what he loved. He loved to. He, he was a farmer, so in that farm he would cultivate. He got pigs. He got fruits. He got everything. And he used to tell me, Felix, on Christmas time, generals, Cuban generals, didn't have a pork to eat. They have to come to my farm, friend of mine. I have to give them from my pork that I cultivated there. But they didn't have. And then he was pretty much frustrated one time that he went to one of these resort area in the north coast of, of Cuba. And when he arrived at the military post before he arrived at the resort, the guy said, Colonel, I know you. I know you are a hero of the revolution, but you cannot come in. This is only for tourists. So he was considered a hero of the revolution and he could not go in there. Only tourists could. I guess one of the things that really disenchanted him about, about, and then he defected and went to party. My gosh, you two must have had some incredible conversations when you were getting to know each other. Was he able to shed the light on what happened, you know, the other side of a lot of events that you were involved in early on? Oh, yeah. We talk about life. He told me, for example, he told me they had sent a Cuban uh, captain at the time. He was the head of intelligence later on, became a general. He went to Vietnam to kill me, according to him. We never heard anything about that. And he claimed that one time I was very heavily protected with bodyguards. And the other time, I was too fast in the car, and, and they could not pick up with me. Now, it is true that I had a driver who was the Chinese origin who's, who drove like nuts. 
whenever we drive in there, you know, we have an official plate from the Vietnamese government and we just drove fast. That, that's true. And the other time, I never had bodyguards in Vietnam, only my driver when I went some places. But there were times that I left the hotel to go to a room to get some for an operation early in the morning. And there would be, the PRU would come to pick me up at the hotel. And everybody was armed to the teeth with machine because we were going to an operation, not to take care of my security. And we all drove down there with M16, grenades, and all kinds of shit on our body. But never because they were, they were really protecting me. It was just going to a mission. Wow, that was, I can't believe how many close calls you had over the years. But I guess what you were saying earlier about destiny is 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 a oh, real really, thing. No doubt about it. And like I said, after we met, after Telemundo put us together in Paris, I used to visit him two, three times a year in Paris. I will arrive at the at the airport. He will pick me up in an old yacht, dark blue, very old that he had. He drive to his home. Now his wife Maria used to cook for me pork, pork steak uh, in Panisado, you know, breaded, which I love. And if, every time I arrived, she made like 10 of those. I had lunch, that steak, dinner, that steak, every single day. Now I stayed four days in the house talking to him. He was doing the talking, I was doing the listening. Because he would tell me interesting things that happened in the Sierra Maestra with Fidel and his entourage, you know, the different commandante. Personal thing that happened in between them that nobody knows. You know, I found that extremely, extremely interesting. So I spent like four days actually talking. I didn't go anywhere. It's like some talking to him. Then on the last day, I used to tell him, I said, look, Lalo, I call him Lalo. If I don't want to see the Eiffel Tower and the Ark of Trump, I haven't been in Paris. So we <laughs> jumped into the car. We drove in front of the Eiffel Tower, the, the tower and the other place. Then an area, my, my daughter used to have an apartment. She used to live in Paris for five years. She was married to a Frenchman for a while. And I used to go there to see. And then we came back and then I lived every single time. Now, one night, we decided to go in front of the Cuban embassy. That was funny. Now, the Cuban embassy is fairly close to the Eiffel Tower. But in, in a secluded area, it's one small road that goes in front of there. Very few cars go through there. It has a huge building. It had a lot of cameras. It slided off with all kinds of light toward the, 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 um, the road. So we stopped right in front of the camera, okay? We got out of the car, both of us, we looked in front of the camera and we gave the finger to the camera, both of us. Then we <laughs> got into the camera and we left. Next day, they had it in Grandma, in the Cuban newspaper, that the traitor of Benigno was having a relationship with the assassin of Che Guevara, Felix Rodriguez. Oh my from gosh. From of the Cuban newspaper on the following day. Wow. I would love to get a look at that issue. Certainly. That's amazing. So yeah. Felix, you've done so much. I mean, this is up through the nineties. The I mean, are you still staying active right now? I know you're deeply involved with the 2506 museum, of course. Do you have yeah, any other have, projects you're working on? Until the pandemic, I used to be a regular speaker in all different types of military bases. For example, I was what they call a adjunct faculty member of the Special Operations University in McBeal Air Force Base in Tampa. Oh, wow. I've spoken there like 22 times, all right? It is about my experience and my life. It, 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 the whole presentation takes, I don't even have to time it. When I finish, I know it will be between two hours and two hours and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I go through the whole thing. So I've been there 22 times. I've been like 12 times in Fort Bragg. I have been several times in the Stone Bay, which is the Marine Special Operations Command right next to Camp Lejeune in, in that area in there. 
Now, just recently, about two weeks ago, I was asked by the Special Operations Admiral of Southcom to go to Homestead, where they have the Special Operations Unit for the whole South, uh, same Western Hemisphere, to give a speech to all his personnel. I, I was able to bring for the first time my family, who had never heard my presentation. I was able to bring my daughter, my son, my, my daughter-in-law, and ah, my grandson. Because my granddaughter is working in, in, as an engineer outside in, in Seattle, Washington. <clears throat> they were, for the first time, they heard me speaking in there. And like two, and a, two, uh, two hours and a half close to that in, in, in Homestead Air Force Base. But they call now, they didn't call it S4 Base, they call it a, a reserve base. Every reserve base. Oh, right, right. Yeah, but that was wonderful for them to see you present that information that they've probably just gotten bits and pieces of over the years. Right. Good. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to coming down to the museum as soon as I can. Are you getting back into the speaking engagements again now that things are, are settling down a little bit? Well, like I said, this first one was in Hampton. Now they told me I would probably be going to Southcom uh, to speak to, the, to those people in there. Okay, and that's that the first of many then. Good. Tampa, they might, because now what they are doing, the classes they were doing at the university in Tampa, it's virtual. It's through computers now and television. Now they, they declare they are planning in the near future to reestablish a regular speaker. And then that, they told me they were going to be calling on me again. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be well attended, certainly. Yeah. My gosh. Well, Felix, thank you. This has been incredibly informative here. I really appreciate you taking so much time to, to lay out all of this stuff for us. That's going to get people talking, certainly. It's a pleasure to be with you and looking forward to you coming to our museum so I can show you everything that we have in there. Yeah, thank you. I'll definitely let you know before I come down there. Perfect. All right. Thanks again, Felix. Take care. Thank you to you also and and congratulations on what you're doing with the Spy Museum there. Oh, well, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.